Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast of excellence. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, chapter 34. Uh, quite the anticlimax wink face. Swim said the mum fish, she said, It's hard not to think that Philip is not attracted to Miss Wilkinson simply because she's female. After all, the novel is semi-autobiographical and the author is homosexual, so it follows, well, at least bisexual. Um, the author allegedly said to his nephew, I tried to persuade myself that I was three quarters normal and that only a quarter of me was queer, whereas really it was the other way round. But readers in 1915 would not have known about the author's sexual orientation. So let's set the above aside. What I see here is a boy trying to learn the new role as a lover. The only one to practice on is Miss Wilkinson. The problem is he has no attraction to her whatsoever and has to talk himself into it every day. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think semi-autobiographical you know it it's probably only loosely based on reality you know loosely based on what happened we know there's fictional characters um we know that the character of philip is different in a lot of ways from the author so we can't really speculate on how much of it is true and how much of it is meant to be sort of symbolic of his life or or exaggerated you know like the novel i just wrote you could say it's semi-autobiographical, but very, very, very semi. It's like 98% fiction, and you know none of the events that happened in the book really happened to me. It's just kind of like, I remember that stage of my life and the kind of emotional turmoil that I went through, um, just being a young man, sort of coming of age, and what if those emotions and, and, and those... Um, attitudes kind of ran away with me you know what if I didn't temper them and and they got the better of me and went sort of their full uh, to their full effect you know what would have happened what would that have looked like and so it's almost like you know you could say oh I remember when I was an angsty young man maybe I was you know a f- four out of ten in in moodiness but that's pretty moody for me. But then you fictionalize it and go, okay, let's amp that up. What if it was a 10 out of 10 or an 11 out of 10, you know? Or like I remember being, you know, in my early relationships when I was sort of a teenager of being quite jealous just because of, I don't know, it was new territory and you just, you kind of got all the self-esteem problems that come with being a teenager and not knowing what, what you're meant to be doing. And so, you know, you, I remember feeling jealous then, but jealous three out of ten. And in the book I wrote, I said, well, what would happen if it, if I let that feeling of jealousy get the better of me and it consumed me? What would a ten out of ten have looked like? And so I was never a ten out of ten in these things. You know, I was normal levels. But, you know, people who are damaged or people who are, I don't know, like... um psychologically kind of unwell I suppose you could say those are the people that let their emotions sort of get the better of them and so you can sort of see in my book shades 
of who I was when I was much younger. But it's dialed up to the extreme, to the point where it's not really... I wouldn't have done any of the things that this character did. Um, I'm only saying that in defense of the author. Um, or not even defense, but just to sort of say... You know, he has said himself it's it's not a biography. You know, it's a work of fiction. Yes, some of it is drawn from his own life, but it's a, ultimately a work of fiction. And so... But people tend to take it the other way. As soon as you say that there's a hint of truth, they just think, oh, this, you know, it's mostly true. And then he's just changed a few little details so that it's, you know, changed a name here and changed it at an event there, just tweaked it a little bit. But it's like, no, no, it's, it's most, it's, it's probably the other way around, you know. It starts with just like a feeling and an emotion and went like, well, what would be a situation where that emotion went to a 10? Um, so like in my book, for an example, just quickly, the character's partner goes missing and then there's a missing person's case and, you know, he ends up on a man hunt or, you know, missing person's hunt every day searching for his missing girlfriend and her boss. She's gone missing and her boss has gone missing. And so part of him just wants to find her and know what happened and know that she's safe. Part of him also has this kind of jealous feeling of like, have they, did they run away together? Have they just done a runner? And that's a situation which allows his jealousy and his paranoia and his um, kind of, well, his mindset in general to deteriorate um, to a degree that ne- that none of those events ever happened to me. But I, I guess my train of thought was like, what would have had to have happened to me in order to amplify my three out of 10 jealousy to a 10 out of 10 jealousy? And then you create fiction from there to accommodate that. So I think, I think you're right, Swim, when you say, you know, we kind of have to put aside what we know from his Wikipedia and just take this as a story on its own. I think we should sort of try i reckon we should try a little bit and i'll see if you guys agree but to maybe try to view this more as fiction than we have been because we've been trying to line up a lot of the events with his real life and i think we do a disservice to a work of fiction when we do that um okay per novel guide when first aware that emily is flirting he is surprised because he had expected more glamour she is not the heroine of the book and he is constantly agonizing about her age or turned off every other moment by some defect like her thick ankles. Miss Wilkinson is no Stifler's mum or Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate. Any 19-year-old boy could probably feel the same as Philip. Stifler's mum and Miss Robinson also would have had much sexier lingerie. <laughs> yeah, than the, the, uh, the petticoat that went to her, down to her boots. That was a funny line. It was a short petticoat that went down to her boots, and I could not picture that in my head. I Am Norwegian says, This whole Schrodinger's attractiveness thing makes it a little complicated. Without knowing that the author was gay, I would never have divined that Philip is too. Not from the chapters so far, at least. I wonder if he actually is, or if the author changed that detail about himself. Yeah, exactly right. So I don't know if Philip is. I don't know if Philip is, just because the author is, you know. 
Fixably said, Schrodinger's attractiveness. Brilliant. This made me laugh out loud. I was wondering the same thing too. Is this a case of 19-year-old hormones in the driver's seat when in reality Philip isn't into Miss Wilkinson? She is simply just available and a bit loose for the time, I assume. Could be. I reckon. Um, yeah, it's probably just a case of she's not that attractive, but she's attractive enough for a 19-year-old boy, you know, uh, with all those hormones going on. Let's read chapter 35. It goes like this. Philip woke early next morning. His sleep had been restless, but when he stretched his legs and looked at the sunshine, that sli- I, you know what? I already know this is going to be a long chapter just because the I can see that the author is in a mood of pointless details. Let me just read this again and just think, if the rest of this chapter goes at this pace, this is going to be a long chapter. Philip woke early the next morning. We don't need to know that. His sleep had been restless. We don't need to know that. But when he stretched his legs and looked at the... You're just describing someone getting out of bed. It's the same every day. But when he stretched his legs and looked at the sunshine that slid through the Venetian blinds... Good to know they're Venetian blinds. It's not at all irrelevant. Making patterns on the floor. Who cares? He sighed with satisfaction. All right. Just say he got out of bed. Or don't even. We can assume by the fact that he's up that he got out of bed. Skip that whole bit. He was delighted with himself. He began to think of Miss Wilkinson. She had asked him to call her Emily, but he knew not why. He could not. He always thought of her as Miss Wilkinson. Since she chid him for so addressing her, he avoided using her name at all. During chid, C-H-I-D, that's the present tense of chided, I suppose. Chided? Uh, during his childhood, he had often heard a sister of Aunt Louisa, the widow of a naval officer, spoken of as Aunt Emily. It made him uncomfortable to call Miss Wilkinson by that name, nor could he think of any that he would have suited her better. She had begun as Miss Wilkinson, and it seemed inseparable from his impression of her. He frowned a little somehow or other. He saw her now at her worst. He could not forget his dismay when she turned around and he saw her in camisole and the short petticoat. He remembered the slight roughness of her skin and the sharp long lines on the side of her neck. His triumph was short-lived. He reckoned out her age again, and he did not see how she could be less than forty. It made the affair ridiculous. He, She was plain and old. His quick fancy showed her to him, wrinkled, haggard, made up in those frocks, which were too showy for her position, and too young for her years. He shuddered. He felt, suddenly, that he never wanted to see her again. He could not bear the thought of kissing her. He was horrified with himself. Was that love? He took as long as he could, overdressing, in order to put back the moment of seeing her, and when at last he went into the dining room, it was with a sinking heart. Prayers were over, and they were sitting down to breakfast. Lazy bones, Miss Wilkinson cried gaily. He looked at her and gave a little gasp of relief. She was sitting with her back to the window. She was really quite nice. He wondered why he had thought such things about her. His self-satisfaction returned to him. He was taken aback by the change in her. She told him in a voice, thrilling with emotion, immediately after breakfast that she loved him, and when a little later they went into the drawing room for his singing lesson, 
and she sat down on the music stool. She put up her face in the middle of a scale and said, Embrace moi. Embrace me, I suppose. When he bent down, she flung her arms around his neck. It was slightly uncomfortable, for she held him in a such position that he felt rather choked. Ah, jetami, 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 she cried with an extravagantly French accent. Philip wished she would speak English. I say, I don't know if it struck you that the garden is quite likely to pass the window any minute. Ah, jemensch fish du gardener, jemensch für fish et für French words. Philip thought it was very like a French novel, and he did not know, know why it slightly irritated him. At last he said, well, I think it's, I'll tootle along to the beach and have a dip. Oh, you're not going to leave me this morning, of all mornings. Philip did not know why she would not. He would not, but it did not matter. Would you like me to stay? He smiled. Oh, you darling, but no, go. I want to think of you mastering the salt sea waves, bathing your limbs in the broad ocean. He got his hat and sauntered off. What rot women talk, he thought to himself. But he was pleased and happy and flattered. She was evidently frightfully gone on him. He, as he limped along the high street of Blackstable, he looked with a tinge of superciliousness at the people he passed. He knew a good many to nod to. And as he gave them a smile of recognition, he thought to himself, if they only knew. He did want someone to know very badly. He thought he would write to Haywood and in his mind composed the letter. He would talk of the garden and of the roses and the little French governess, like an exotic flower amongst them, scented and perverse. He would say she was French because, well, she had lived in France so long that she almost was, and besides it would be shabby to give the whole thing away to exactly. Don't you know? And he would tell Haywood how he had seen her first in her pretty muslin dress and of the flower she had given him he made a delicate idol of it. The sunshine and the sea gave it passion and magic, and the stars added poetry, and the old vicarage garden was a fit and exquisite setting. There was something Meredithian about it, and it was not quite Lucy Feverell and not quite Clara Middleton, but it was inexpressibly charming. Philip's heart beat quickly. He was so delighted with his fancies that he began thinking of them again as soon as he crawled back, dripping and cold, into his bathing machine. He thought of the object of his affections. She had the most adorable little nose and large brown eyes. He would describe her to Haywood, and masses of soft brown hair, the sort of hair it was delicious to bury your face in, and a skin which was like ivory and sunshine, and her cheek was like a red, red rose. How old was she? Eighteen, perhaps, and he called her Musette. Her laughter was like a rippling brook, and her voice was so soft, so low, it was the sweetest music he had ever heard. What are you thinking about? Philip stopped suddenly. He was walking slowly home. I've been waving at you for the last quarter of a mile. You are absent-minded. Miss Wilkinson was standing in front of him, laughing at his surprise. I thought I'd come and meet you. That's awfully nice of you, he said. Did I startle you? You did a bit, he admitted. He wrote his letter to Haywood all the same. There were eight pages of it. The fortnight that remained passed quickly, and though each evening when they went into the garden after supper, Miss Wilkinson remarked that one day more had gone. Philip was in too cheerful spirits to let the thought depress him. One night, Miss Wilkinson suggested that it would be delightful if she could exchange her situation in Berlin for one in London. Then they could see one another constantly. 
Philip said it would be very jolly, but the prospect aroused no enthusiasm in him. He was looking forward to a wonderful life in London, and he preferred not to be hampered. He spoke a little too freely of all he meant to do, and allowed Miss Wilkinson to see that already he was longing to be off. "'You wouldn't talk like that if you loved me,' she cried. He was taken aback and remained silent. "'What a fool I've been,' she muttered. To his surprise he saw that she was crying. He had a tender heart and hated to see anyone miserable. "'Oh, I'm awfully sorry. What have I done? Don't cry.' "'Oh, Philip, don't leave me. You don't know what you mean to me. I have such a wretched life, and you've made me so happy.' He kissed her silently. There really was anguish in her tone, and he was frightened. It had never occurred to him that she meant what she said quite seriously. I'm awfully sorry. You know, I'm frightfully fond of you. I wish you would come to London. You know I can't. Places are almost impossible to get, and I hate English life. Almost unconsciously, that was that he was acting apart. Moved by her distress, he pressed her more and more. Her tears vaguely flattered him, and he kissed her with real passion. But a day or two later, she made a real scene. There was a tennis party at the vicarage, and two girls came, daughters of the retired major in an Indian regiment who had lately settled in Blackstable. They were very pretty. One was Philip's age, and the other was a year or two younger. Being used to the society of young men, they were full of stories of hill stations in India, and at the time, the stories of Rudyard Kipling were in every hand. They began to chaff Philip gaily, and he, pleased with the novelty, the young ladies at Blackstable treated the vicar's nephew with a certain seriousness, was gay and jolly. Some devil within him prompted him to start a violent flirtation with them both, and as he was the only young man there, they were quite willing to meet him halfway. It happened that they played tennis quite well, and Philip was tired of pat ball with Miss Wilkinson. She had only begun to play when she came to Blackstable. So when he arranged the sets after tea... He suggested that Miss Wilkinson should play against the curate's wife with the curate as her partner and he would play later with the newcomers. He sat down by the elder Miss O'Connor and said to her in an undertone, We'll get the duffers out of the way first and then we'll have a jolly set afterwards. Apparently Miss Wilkinson overheard him, for she threw down her racket and saying she had a headache went away. It was plain to everyone that she was offended. Philip was annoyed that she should make the fact public. The set was arranged without her, but presently Mrs. Carey called him. Philip, you've hurt Emily's feelings. She's gone to her room and she's crying. What about? Oh, something about a duffer's set. Do go to her and say you didn't mean to be unkind. There's a good boy. All right. He knocked at Mrs. Wilkinson's door, but receiving no answer, went in. He found her lying face downwards on her bed, weeping. He touched her on the shoulder. I say, what on earth's the matter? Leave me alone. I never want to speak to you again. What have I done? I'm awfully sorry if I've hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. I say, do get up. Oh, I'm so unhappy. How could you be so cruel? You know I hate that stupid game. I only play because I want to play with you. She got up and walked towards the dressing table, but after a quick look in the glass, sank into a chair. She made her handkerchief into a ball and dabbed her eyes with it. I've given you the greatest thing a woman can give a man. Oh, what a fool I was. And you have no gratitude. You must be quite heartless. How could you be so cruel as to torment me by flirting with those vulgar girls? We've only got just over a week. Can't you even give me that? Philip stood over her rather sulkily. He thought her behaviour childish. He was vexed with her for having shown her ill temper before strangers. But, you know, 
I don't care twopence about either of the O'Connors. Why on earth should I? you think I do? Miss Wilkinson put away her handkerchief. Her tears had made marks on the, her powdered face, and her hair was somewhat disarranged. Her white dress did not suit her very well just then. She looked at Philip with hungry, passionate eyes. Because you're twenty, and so is she, she said hoarsely, and I am old. Philip reddened and looked away. The anguish of her tone made him feel strangely uneasy. He wished with all his heart that he had never had anything to do with Miss Wilkinson. I don't want to make you unhappy, he said un He said awkwardly. You'd better go down and look after your friends. They'll wonder what has become of you. All right. He was glad to leave her. The quarrel was quickly followed by a reconciliation, but the few days that remained were sometimes irksome to Philip. He wanted to talk of nothing but the future, and the future invariably reduced Miss Wilkinson to tears. At first, her weeping affected him, and feeling himself a beast, he redoubled his protestations of undying passion, but now it irritated him. It would have been all very well if she had been a girl, but it was silly of a grown-up woman to cry so much. She never ceased reminding him that he was under a debt of gratitude to her, which she could never repay. He was willing to acknowledge this since she made a point of it, but he did not really know why he should be any more grateful to her than she to him. He was expected to show his sense of obligation in ways which were rather a nuisance. He had, never <clears throat> he had been a good deal used to solitude, and it was ne a necessity to him sometimes, but Miss Wilkinson looked upon it as an unkindness if he was not always at her beck and call. The Miss O'Connors asked them both to tea, and Philip would have liked to go but miss wilkinson said she only had five days more and wanted him entirely to herself it was flattering but a bore miss wilkinson told him stories of the exquisite delicacy of frenchmen when they stood in the same relation of to fair ladies as he to miss wilkinson she praised their courtesy their passion for self-sacrifice their perfect tact miss wilkinson seemed to want a great deal philip listened to the enumeration of the qualities which must be possessed by the perfect lover and he could not help feeling a certain satisfaction that she lived in Berlin. You will write to me, won't you? Write to me every day. I want to know everything you're doing. You must keep nothing from me. I shall be awfully busy, he answered. I'll write as often as I can. She flung her arms passionately around his neck. He was embarrassed sometimes by the demonstrations of her affection. He would have preferred her to be more passive. It shocked him a little that she should give him so marked a lead. It did not tally altogether with his prepossessions about the modesty of the feminine temperament. At length the day came on which Miss Wilkinson was to go, and she came down to breakfast pale and subdued in a serviceable travelling dress of black and white check. She looked a very competent governess. Philip was silent too, for he did not quite know what to say that would fit the circumstances, and he was terribly afraid. If he said something flippant, Miss Wilkinson would break down before his uncle and make a scene. They had said their last goodbye to one another in the garden the night before, and Philip was relieved that there was now no opportunity for them to be alone. He remained in the dining room after breakfast in case Miss Wilkinson should insist on kissing him on the stairs. He did not want Mary Ann, now a woman, hard upon middle age with a sharp tongue, to catch them in a compromising position. Mary Ann did not like Miss Wilkinson and called her an old cat. Aunt Louisa was not very well and could not come to the station, but the vicar and Philip saw her off. Just as the train was leaving, she kissed. She leaned out and kissed Mr. Carey. "'I must kiss you too, Philip,' she said. "'All right,' he said, blushing. 
He stood up on the step and she kissed him quickly. The train started. Miss Wilkinson sank into the corner of her carriage and wept disconsolately. Philip, as he walked back to the vicarage, felt a distinct sensation of relief. "'Well, did you see her off safely?' asked Aunt Louisa when they got in. "'Yes, she seems rather weeping. She insisted on kissing me and Philip.' "'Oh, well, at her age it's not dangerous,' Mrs. Carey pointed to the sideboard. "'There's a letter for you, Philip. It came by the second post. "'It was from Haywood and ran as follows. "'My dear boy, I answer your letter at once. "'I ventured to read it to a great friend of mine, "'a charming woman whose help and sympathy have been very precious to me, "'a woman with all with a real feeling for art and literature, "'and we agreed that it was charming. "'You wrote from your heart, and you do not know the delightful naivety.' which is in every line. And because you love your because you love, you write like a poet. Ah, dear boy, that is the real thing. I felt the glow of your young passion, and your prose was musical, and the sincerity of your emotion. You must be happy. I wish I could have been present, unseen, in that enchanted garden, while you wandered hand in hand, like Daphnis and Chloe, amid the flowers. I can see you, my Daphnis, with the light of young love in your eyes, tender and raptured and ardent, while Chloe, in your arms, so young and soft and fresh, vowing she would never consent, consented. Roses and violets and honeysuckle, oh, my friend, I envy you. It is so good to think that your first love should have been pure poetry. Treasure the moments, for the immortal gods have given you the greatest gift of all, and it will be a sweet, sad memory to your dying day. You will never again enjoy that careless rapture. First love is best love, and she is beautiful, and you are young, and all the world is yours. I felt my pulse go faster when you, when with your adorable simplicity you told me that you buried your face in her long hair. I am sure that it is that exquisite chestnut which seems just touched with gold. I would have you sit under a leafy tree side by side and read together Romeo and Juliet, and then... I would have you fall on your knees, and on my behalf kiss the ground on which her foot has left its imprint. Then tell her it is the homage to a poet, to her radiant youth, and to your love for her. Yours always, G. Etheridge Hayward. You, what damned rot, said Philip when he finished the letter. Miss Wilkinson, oddly enough, had suggested that they should read Romeo and Juliet together, but Philip had firmly declined. Then, as he put the letter in his pocket... He felt a queer little pang of bitterness because reality seemed so different from the ideal. All right, there we go. Another chapter done. Whoa. Uh, okay. Get out of here, Miss Wilkinson. We're done with you. <laughs> We're done with you, Miss Wilkinson. Uh, have your say over at the subreddit. I'm going to bed. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.